Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. I'm Ben Greenman, and today I'll be reading a selection from my new novel, Please Step Back. It's the story of a fictional funk rock star from the 60s and 70s in America. The character is loosely based on real stars from that period, partly Sly Stone, partly Curtis Mayfield, partly Marvin Gaye, a greater part Sly Stone, though no one person in particular because, as I said, it's fiction. And I'm going to be reading a selection uh, that follows the main character, Robert Franklin, from Boston, where he lives in the mid-60s, out to the Bay Area. This is his uh, movement east to west to become the rock star that he will become. So I'm, I'll read a section. This is from Boston, July 1966. Long and lean, hair blown out, Robert squinted against the sun. He was 22, like a gun, and he was out day-hawking for college girls in Harvard Square. He shined on them as they passed, gave them a piano of teeth, hummed to himself. When you smile, all the gloom turns to sunshine. If I had it in my power, I'd arrange for every girl to have your charms. He was about to follow a brunette down the street when he picked up on the conversation of the group of kids next to him. They were three white kids, dressed and pressed and fresh from lunch. A thin girl with a red bow of a mouth, and two boys, one tall and one short, both with glasses. The short kid was talking basketball, Russell versus Chamberlain, and Robert leaned in and listened. I don't think Russell's the same without our back, the kid said. He bit off more than he could chew. Robert didn't care what the short kid thought, but he thought he knew the tall one. He thought it was Tony Clementi, a guy he knew from the neighborhood and then from the clubs. Tony had been into music almost as much as Robert, when Robert had gone off to join the Tremolos with that drill sergeant, Carl Chandler. Tony had been in the Blue Wings and the Sparrows. Tony knew the words to every song and what they meant. But maybe he was wrong. This kid had longer hair than Tony, and he was wearing a blue blazer that Tony wouldn't wear on a dare. Robert stared down at his feet, then over at the group. Now that he wasn't grinning, some of the passers-by detoured around him. Once downtown, an older woman had caught him looking at a younger woman with too much pepper in his eyes, and she wrinkled up her nose like he was something that had a stink. Had your fill, Emmett Till? The little kid was wailing the koozie blues now, how he could still tear up the league if he was playing. He'd be almost 40 now, the kid said, but he could run circles around Monroe. He's coaching over at B.C. now, you know, but I'll bet you he's planning a comeback. Robert let out his breath. Motherfucker was going to kill him with talking. He stepped in and said, Tony? Hey, said Tony. Then recognition uncreased his brow. Robert Franklin, he said. Long time no see. Yeah, said Robert. What's going on with you? Tony was soft and smart like Robert remembered, but the motherfucking blazer was an obstacle. Nothing, said Robert. Walking. Carl still hitting it at the English house, Tony said. Don't know, man. I split. It's up, up, and away. Cool, said Tony. No, it's cooler than cool, Robert said. I'm thinking of starting my own group. He didn't know he was going to say it until he said it, and then he didn't know why he had said it. 
maybe to see the glow that appeared in Tony's eyes, which was more warmth than light. Really, Tony said, an R&B band? No, Robert said, a rock and roll band. A colored rock and roll band? More glow. I'm not colored, said Robert. I'm kissed by the sun. Tony laughed. It's not a half-bad idea, he said. Well, anyway, Robert said, not all colored. White boys allowed. Here in Boston? Robert wished Tony wasn't so interested, but the questions were making him answer. Why not? Tony laughed. I'm not sure if Boston's quite ready for something like that. He tugged on his blazer like it was suddenly too small on him. I think California's the place to do it. I was out at North Beach last summer, and you wouldn't believe it. It makes Boston look like the worst drag on earth. Really, said Robert, my cousin Lucas moved out to San Francisco. Wasn't he a player, too? Yeah, Robert said, hell of one, bass. Now he's got a family, and what they call a complicated relationship with the church. Hard to bring him back from that. Tony, said the small kid, we gotta go. We're seeing a movie, Tony said to Robert, apologetically. Catch you later, maybe out in California. Robert went out to the Charles and watched the boats cut the river, razor-like. At his feet, leaning up against the rail, he saw a paper cup, half-filled with milky coffee. He kicked at it, launched the coffee into the river, where it hit the surface and disappeared. He turned and headed back into Cambridge, where he took up position outside the movie theater and waited. The movie was Othello with Orson Welles. Robert didn't remember the book well, but he knew it was about a black dude and a white chick. Finally the crowd began to emerge, and Robert caught sight of Tony. Hey, he said, and motioned him over. Let me get your phone number, just in case. Tony wrote out his phone number in a matchbook in a neat hand, while Robert waited, dropping a dark eye on the bow-mouthed girl. The phone number went into his jacket pocket, and the jacket went onto a hook on the wall, and the wall stayed right where it was, and he didn't think much of it for a while. He settled back in, hung with friends, went into his room to practice guitar, took girls on long walks now and again, sometimes managed to make them. Then he was killing an afternoon, eating a sandwich and watching TV with the sound down so that he could listen to the radio. Slim Harper was on, singing Baby Scratch My Back, and he was singing along when he saw a picture of Ted Williams on TV. He didn't care about baseball very much, but something made him turn up the volume. The newscaster squared her papers on the desk and cleared her throat. In his Hall of Fame induction speech today, she said, the Red Sox legend made a plea for the great players of the Negro Leagues to be extended baseball's highest honor. Extended. Robert liked that. It was like a branch going out. Next, the anchor threw it over to a reporter on the street who asked fans about William's speech. Two of them nodded, but the third man shook his eye and scowled. Why not put the guys who drive the bus or the grounds crew, he said. The splinter's wrong. Animals shouldn't be next to people. It's not dignified. Animals next to people. Robert laughed, but he felt a pressure behind his eyes, and that's when he realized he was crying. Motherfucker, he said. Why do you have to go and get me like that? He picked up the telephone, dialed Tony's number. Hey, he said. It's Robert Franklin. Robert, said Tony. Hold on. Robert heard the TV through the phone. You watching what Ted Williams did? Watching it right now, Robert said. Is that what they mean by color TV? He's half Mexican, you know, Tony said. I think he has a vested interest. But I can't stand that now people are going to turn against him. That's why I'm so happy I'm going out west. 
Well, said Robert, pausing just a second before leaping, that's why I'm calling. You got room? I do if you do. It's your car. No, I meant in the band you want to start. Do you need a guitarist? Tony was doing it again, asking questions until the thing became real. Yeah, said Robert, I got room. Your parents okay with the splitting, Tony asked. My father's dead, Robert said. Oh, Tony said. Your mother? Robert could hear her in the other room, coughing. Her bottle clinked as she set it down on the table. He knew that when it came time to say goodbye, she wouldn't be able to lift her heart enough to even look at him. She was certain the world was out to take everything from her. She's fine with it, he said, so long as I get famous. Well then, Tony said, let's not disappoint her. How do you square away a life, especially one you haven't started living? You kiss some girls goodbye, shake some hands, drive by a building or two, you pack your bags. You tell your mama and tell her again to make sure she understands. Then you wake up early one morning and sit by the window, waiting for the car to pull up, and when you see it, a 65 Chrysler New Yorker hardtop, black with rust spots, you run downstairs, slowing to a cooler walk only when you're spotted. You ready, Tony said? Give me a minute, Robert said. He went back upstairs to his mama's bedside. She was knocked out loaded, smelling like last night's whiskey. Robert slipped a letter under her pillow. He had written it a few nights before, when he wasn't mad, when he didn't feel pity. It told her that he loved her and that he wanted her to be proud of him. And when he was there, at the side of the bed, it was all true. He even had a tear in his eye when he got into Tony's car. For a while they took turns behind the wheel, but in the middle of Pennsylvania Tony started driving because he was better at it, and Robert manned the maps. He wanted to sleep, but he didn't trust Tony to stay alert, so instead he asked questions about whatever he could think of music, sports, dates. Tony told Robert about Skiffle, and Robert told Tony about Doo-Wop, and then they agreed that they both already knew plenty about both. Tony said he was reading through the complete works of Shakespeare. That's why I was seeing that movie the day I ran into you, he said. I remember, Robert said, and told Tony about the way he had given a hot eye to the pretty little girl in honor of the play. Tony laughed. Things don't turn out so good for Othello in the end. Though I think your luck with her would have been about the same as his, with Desdemona. She's a real ball-breaker. Got both of yours, Robert said. She did, Tony said, and not in the good way. Tony told Robert about his family. His father's father had come from Abruzzo to Endicott Street. When he started dating my mother, his parents were down on the idea because she was Sicilian. Italians discriminate against other Italians, Robert said. Sure, Tony said. You think racism's just about color? We're smart enough to have our own idiotic prejudices. Tony's mother was a teacher, and his father was a judge. All fathers are, I guess, he said. They were through to Ohio before Robert knew it, but then the wide middle of the country widened more, and there were long stretches where neither of them had anything to say except for pointing out a cherry car or a dead animal. They tried not to come off the road, because coming off meant looks from old men in shirt sleeves and thick glasses. In Indiana, he was stepping out of a bathroom when a young guy in a mechanic's uniform brandished a wrench at him. He got back to Tony in the car quick. In Illinois, a little girl even pointed and scowled, and her mother, rather than reprimanding her, took one look and whisked her away to safety. Robert felt a chill until he turned and saw Tony smiling grimly, and he smiled grimly in fraternity. Rednecks, Tony said when they were back in the car. 
You'd think they'd never seen two fags before. Robert laughed out loud and in all directions. He laughed at the top of his lungs. He laughed to the tips of his fingers. He wanted to hug Tony, but he worried that it would be read ironically. Man, he said, you just put all the poison out of my head. Poison's bad for mileage, Tony said, and it's bad for me. Robert went to sleep now. He had all the trust he needed. He dreamed dreams he would never remember, except in the broadest sense. Dreams of open spaces, of cool temperatures, of palms facing up. In Kansas, Tony got his guitar out of the back and played along with the radio. It was Donovan singing Sunshine Superman. Shit, Robert said, you forgot the harpsichord. The morning of the third day in Nebraska, Robert climbed out of the car, blinking into the flame of the afternoon. He looked past Tony, past the car, past the diner, into the endless fields, dust rose, and clouds at his feet. Robert started walking, and he didn't turn around when Tony called after him. Why should he? He wasn't walking away from Tony. He was walking away from himself. The way he figured it, Robert Franklin could try to leave Boston. But as long as he was Robert Franklin, a piece of him would never leave. He had two choices, remain or rename. It was simple and elegant. He didn't know why he hadn't thought of it sooner. During Robert's turn at the wheel, there were storms in the distance, lightning bolts stabbing the broad hills. The soul station was breaking up, so Robert returned to the news, which was rehashing the Charles Whitman case. Thirteen dead, the man on the radio said. Unlucky number, Robert said, for everyone. The next station had an Elvis song, and Robert switched it off. Not for me, he said. That's where you're wrong, Tony said. He's for everybody. He'd skipped Elvis at first, too, because he thought he was too square. He went to Gene Vincent for a little while. But then he came to think that the path to enlightenment involved sitting in his room with girls and playing them kink songs. One time he was trying till the end of the day, and his father came home in a rage from work. He burst into Tony's room and told him that the whole house was filthy raising his voice so terribly that the girl Tony was sitting with collapsed in tears. Tony couldn't imagine where his father had learned to raise his voice. He had always been a kind man who was called Captain by the children in the neighborhood because he called his car the S.S. Clementi. Tony sent the girl home and cleaned his room in surprise. Afterwards, he was walking down the hallway when he heard music coming from somewhere else in the house. He followed it to the basement and saw his father in a big leather chair, Elvis was playing on the basement phonograph. Tony stood there and listened and watched as his father's head bobbed almost imperceptibly and his fingers twitched in time. His father either didn't know Tony was there or didn't care. It was a point of contact, Tony said, maybe the only one, but enough. You know that feeling when you have maybe one thing in common with another person, but it's enough to bind you? Do I know that feeling, Robert said. I'm having it now. The soul station was coming in strong. We got it now, the DJ said. Junior Walker and the All-Stars with I'm a Roadrunner. What kind of fish or fowl are you? The song was on, and though it moved, something about it left Robert cold. The sack squeaked. There wasn't enough bottom. But the DJ's question got up into him, and then he happened to look in the mirror, and that's when it hit him. It wasn't a rat or a mouse he looked like. It was a fox, quick and brown. Maybe that's where his name should come from, Fox. He would jump over the lazy dog. Robert Fox? No, too much like some old-time white actor or a baseball player. But what if he added another X for Malcolm 
and for that other cat, Charles Fox, the one who did Mockingbird. Then he had F-O-X-X, F-O-X-S, but he'd have to drop Robert, too. He moved the name through his mind. Black Fox? Dr. Fox? Rock Fox? Yeah, that would do. For the music. For the hard heart. For the very sound of it. Wyoming was everywhere. At mile marker 158, he saw a sign for the Continental Divide. He pulled over on the shoulder of the road and poked Tony awake. Ow, Tony said, where are we? Opinion is divided, Robert said. I'm getting out of the car. You're hyped, Robert. I'm not, he said. Not hyped, and not Robert. He stepped out of the car and walked to the sign. Then he jumped back and forth across its shadow. Franklin, Fox, Franklin, Fox, he said. What are you doing, Tony said. Crossing over to see myself, he said. He jumped again and didn't come down for years. Crazy like a fox, Robert said to himself in the car mirror, then in the window of the first shop in San Francisco, and again as he stood on the beach and took a step into the Pacific Ocean. Crazy like a Robert, Fox said in reply. At first the names teamed up. Each on its own wouldn't have known what to do with San Francisco. First of all, there were the girls. They were everywhere. Staring out from behind their bangs in the mission, pressed against the sides of doorways in the hate, they were white, they were red, they were yellow. But it wasn't just the girls. New smells popped like corn, the light was lighter, the sun sunnier, even clothes weren't what they had been. One afternoon, Robert rode the vibe, went out in a fishtail parka. These clothes don't fit me, said Robert, but no one listened to Robert anymore. The first few days, Fox and Tony slept in the car or under the stars in the green midriff of Golden Gate Park. During the day, they set up an open guitar case in front of them and played soul songs in delicate duet fashion. We're salt and pepper, said Fox. We're yin and yang, said Tony. Fox let it go at that. He had noticed that Tony seemed to need the last word sometimes. Near the end of the first week, they looked at a rooming house on Geary, a subdivided Victorian with an upstairs room to let. Come up and see it, said the woman who answered the door. It was nothing special, a small space jammed with old-fashioned furniture and stained scatter rugs. There was one bed, one sofa, and one chair. The whole place wasn't much bigger than the car. Do you like it, said the woman? I likes it okay, said Fox, putting on whitey by putting on black. She surprised him with a broad, generous smile. I'd give it to you if I could. I don't need the room. You'll give it to us? I can't, she said. I also need the money, but how about fifteen a month? Robert, he said, holding out his hand. Janine, she said. It turned out that Janine had been born in Providence, and during their first few weeks in San Francisco, Fox and Tony traded news east for west. She told them about the hip job co-op and Cedar Alley. She told them where to go for shoes and where to go for food and where not to go to stay safe from dealers and pimps. Finally, she told Tony where he could trade in the country squire, and he went away one morning with the struggle buggy and came back with an ash-colored Volkswagen that smelled like hot rubber. It needed paint, and Tony took care of it, paying $20 to some viejo in Vallejo to make it red. Fox asked Janine if he could paint the room the same red and nail a basketball hoop in the back corner of the house. He and Tony played some afternoons, or played around at least, dribbling and shooting. Fox was Oscar Robertson, or Hal Greer, or Sam Jones. You can be Rick Barry, he told Tony. No way, Tony said. It's koozie or nothing. 
It's nothing, then, Fox said, and pulled up to take a jumper over Tony. The ball clanged helplessly off the back of the rim. Swish, Fox said. Summertime, and the living is easy. It was easy. There were meadows that smelled like new grass, girls who walked across the green in miniskirts and fishnets. Fox and Tony sang five days a week in the park. They cleared enough to pay Janine rent, help out with food, and they were even getting a little reputation. They saw the same people, and the same people saw them. One Friday, a cat in a leather cap put a dollar bill in the case. Thanks, man, Tony said. Thank you, the man said. He introduced himself. His name was Bill something. Fox didn't catch the last name, or rather he caught it and dropped it. And he worked for a record label. I appreciate what you two are doing. Always looking for the next big thing, he said. He had a wide mustache and a shirt that was two sizes too tight. Look no further, Fox said. At the moment I'm not, the man said. Hey, I have a question. Want to come out to Candlestick to see the Beatles next week? I know a guy who knows a guy who knows Tom Donahue over at KYA. Really, Tony said? Sure, the man said. Horseshoe Reserve, the best seats they've got. It's not selling like wildfire, so I can get a pair easy. What do you think, Tony said, looking at Robert? I have a mop, Fox said. The man laughed. The next big thing doesn't want to see the last big thing? Forward thoughts the thought I've got, Fox said. I'll go, Tony said. That was good enough for Robert. Anyway, he knew what Tony would report back, that the crowd screamed, that the band was out of shape and out of sorts, that John Lennon made a joke that no one else understood, that the earth didn't move the way it should have. He also knew that Tony would tell him that Bill something tried to make a move, invite him back to his pad. While Tony was at the show, Fox was making a girl he had met at the carousel. Her name was Mary, and she went round. The next morning he took her back to Piedmont where she lived, and on his way back he stopped in to see Lucas, who was living with Adele and the baby in a little house in East Oakland. As Fox pulled up in the Volkswagen, Lucas was pulling up too, in a 1961 Chrysler Newport whose passenger drawer was rusted near to out. Nice ride, Lucas said. Nice beater, Fox said. Runs fine, Lucas said. There's a guy down at work who has a 66 Imperial LeBaron, and this boat can go by it like it's standing still. You can get a 66 Imperial on what you make? Lucas was working as an orderly at Oakland Hospital. No, I can't, Lucas said, a doctor. He led Robert inside the house and popped the tops off a pair of beers. You should come by some day, he said. They're hiring. Slow loot, man, Robert said, and a square is a square meal. Don't tell me you're going to try to make it with your band, Lucas said. The odds are a million to one. But I'm the one, baby, Robert said. I'm the one. You think I'm going to spend my days sweating for a nickel and then the next one after that? You know me better than that, man. I'm going to get me some stone vines and an Eldorado and a big bright ring to go on my big black finger. Kid killer pimp, Lucas said, laughing. I ain't no fool, Fox said. Could have fooled me, said Lucas, still laughing. Come back when you have something to report. He didn't see Lucas for a while. Instead, he saw the charlatans at Sokol Hall. He saw Sopwith Camel at the firehouse. He saw Dan Hicks in the street, talking to an older guy, both of them appearing angry until he got close and saw that they were laughing. He saw Grace Slick sitting in a new Cadillac, holding a glass of wine that was so big it was like a soup bowl. One night he saw the Righteous Brothers standing in the entrance to a closed restaurant, looking all around like they had nothing better to do. He tried to go everywhere, until Mary explained that everywhere was nowhere, and then he just tried to go somewhere. 
Change, real change, not the word, but the thing, was in the air, and he breathed deeply until the air was in him. But change had its limits. He split up with Mary when she invited him to sleep in a tent in the park. Never happen, never will, he said. Need a real roof over my head. Angels can see the sky, she said, by way of argument. Mary spent the night with a guy named Dean, but she was back to see Fox the next week. I think I caught a glimpse of you there up among the stars, she said. Told you, he said. One morning early, before the fog burned off, Fox was sitting on the steps of Janine's house looking at a handbill. There was a new band named Moby Grape that had splintered off the airplane. Everyone said they were going to make it big. Blues, country, rock, jug, a girl had said to him, beaming, like they had just cut a key to her heart. Fox imagined what the music would sound like. It was a game he played with himself when he first heard of bands, and more often than not he was right. He lit a cigarette, held it for a while, and ground it out without taking a drag. Two of the guys who played with the alligator clip were coming up the street, obviously stoned. Jack, Fox said, stepping toward them. Neil. Hey, hey, Jack said. Not too close, man. Stop Tom lynching me. He wasn't quite smiling. I just wanted to tell you that I saw you guys play with Duncan Blue Boy, and it was cool. Get your own band, man. I'm starting one, Fox said with surprise. Sure you are, Neil said. My kid brother is too, and my grandmother, and the little girl down the street. You all are. One day it's going to be nothing but bands, with no one left to see them. We call that day the future. They giggled and moved off down the street. A few days later, he and Tony went to see Andrei Woznesensky at the Fillmore. A poet in a concert hall, Tony said. If this isn't the new world, I don't know what is. Everyone was shoulder to shoulder, which was fine with Vox, because it meant he could put his arm around the blonde girl next to him. She smiled and focused on a point somewhere in the middle distance. The poet made some remarks in Russian. The Jefferson airplane played for ten minutes, and then Lawrence Ferlinghetti read translations of some of the poems. They're like pop songs, the girl said, but she was wrong. The energy was steadier, with lower highs and higher lows. In one of them, the poet was waiting on a roadside for a friend of his. Anticipation lightens our lives, he said. Fox saw the words as if they were written in the air in front of him, but he didn't see things the same way. Anticipation didn't lighten anything. It was a weight pushing down on him, and everything would be crushed except for what escaped. By the end of the show, the blonde girl was focusing on a point nearer to them, and she was even returning Fox's pressure, but he just gave her a smile and moved off into the departing crowd. Why didn't you go for it, Tony said when they were walking home, or at least you could have let me try. I have something else to do, Fox said. You mean Mary, Tony said? I, I thought you guys were finished. I mean the band, Fox said. We need it now. He told Tony about how the guys from the alligator clip had mocked them. So you want to do it because they made you feel bad, Tony said. Why don't you wait until it seems right? It's a big world. We'll find a place in it. Let's get so big that the rest of it seems tiny, Fox said. Let's be the thing that other people look up at and wonder how it got that way. Rhetoric precedes action unless it replaces it, Tony said. Fox assumed that this was a line from one of the poems that he had missed while he was putting his arm around the blonde. A few weeks later, Fox had an idea for a band, or at the very least a name. How about Dig, he said, just the one word. 
He and Tony were stopped at the corner of Souter and Van Ness, picking at the remnants of burritos. There was a tall Chinese girl in a purple coat on the other corner, and Fox made sure that she stayed in his eye line. Because we dig what's going on, Tony said, or because of the diggers? Watch your mouth, Fox said. No, Tony said, you know, the group here in the hate, they named themselves after English radicals from the 17th century. You reading those books again, Point Dexter, Fox said? That's history, and I don't care about history. My now and then is in the future. Dig? The girl across the street was talking to another cat now. Hey, Fox called to her. Want to be in a band? She turned and smiled, but didn't answer. And what kind of music would Dig play, Tony said. Say we, Fox said. That makes it real. Tony sighed. What kind of music would we play? Music, music. You know. So you don't know either. Man, Robert said, we'll just play. Didn't you tell me that you met a drummer the other day? When Fox went out, he tried to take in the music. When Tony went out, he took names and numbers. Yeah, Tony said, this guy named Pete. He's played some shows with the guys in Mystery Trend. We'll bring him over one night. And you think that all of a sudden we'll have a band? I don't think, Robert said. I know. Dig? Pete was older, maybe 30, and he had an endless list of questions about what his guarantees would be if the band ever made it. You have an awful lot of confidence in us, Tony said. They were sitting in the front room at Janine's drinking long necks. You don't understand, man, Pete said. Almost every player out here has been in ten bands that failed. That's not unusual. What's unusual is that they're all in the same bands, Oxford Circle, Grassroots, Elementals, Capstone. The bands that make it, they're the rocket to the moon. If this is one of them, we have to make sure that we're all together in this. Okay, Tony said. I'll have some papers drawn up, but in the meantime... Let's make sure you're right for this thing. He took out his guitar. I play lead guitar. Robert sings. Robert, he said. Me, Fox said. So what's the sound? Tony looked over at Fox, frowning a little bit to show that he was curious too. You know how the Beatles and the Stones took songs from Little Richard and Muddy Waters, Fox said? Well, we're taking their songs and putting the black back into them. Jagger's pretty black. I'm prettier, Fox said, and blacker. Pete laughed, but he was listening, too. He had his sticks with him, and he tapped out a beat on the tabletop. Tony started in on You Won't See Me, and Fox started to sing, moving a little toward the way Otis might have done it, backing off when it sounded too close. Fox liked the way it was going, everyone keeping themselves in control. He could picture them on stage, and the picture wasn't blurry. Works for me if it works for you, Pete said. Who's your bass player? We're waiting on a guy, but he's holding out, Tony said. He was talking about Lucas. We're not waiting anymore, Fox said. My patience stretches only so far before it breaks. Well, while you're waiting, I might have someone for you. What's his name, Tony said. Her, Pete said. A girl, Tony said. But Fox was saying perfect at the exact same time. Her name was Gretchen, and she looked like what Fox thought a Gretchen should look like. Tall, Nordic, a little mannish. She could play the bass, though. And moreover, her father knew the guy who owned the Matrix. Fox couldn't tell if she was Pete's girl, or one of many, or if Pete was one of many guys for her. She did look at Pete like they had a secret, though, and sometimes whispered things that Fox and Tony couldn't hear. Annoying, said Tony, who wanted to make her, and Fox agreed. They put her out in front, right next to Fox, dressed in tall boots and a short coat, both white leather. They practiced more than Fox thought they needed to, past where the songs were second nature. 
but they didn't sound like first nature so much as they sounded unnatural. When Fox tried to explain, Tony frowned, so he stopped. The night of the first gig, he felt his stomach for what he hoped would be nerves, but it was like a steel box sealed off, and he played that way too. It was nothing special except for the fact that they went for an hour and the girls in the front screamed and one of them came backstage afterwards and sat on Fox's lap and kissed him while she slipped his hand inside her shirt. You're going to be all there is, she said. And he believed her, even though her pupils were as big as nickels. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.